Psalm 39. That's where we'll be this morning. And we're just going to jump right in and read the text together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I'm mute. I do not open my mouth, for it's you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin... You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Would you pray with me again? Lord, help us. To know the measure of our days. We so often think of ourselves in terms that we shouldn't. David understood that he was just a breath. Lord, we know that maybe with our hearts, but our heads seem to think that we're going to last forever. And nothing ever goes wrong, and yet we know the reality is is different than that, Lord. So we need to know from your word what this means, and we need to understand it so that, Lord, you can give us grace to live it out as we leave this place later. Thank you for your word that instructs, corrects, guides, informs, and is inspired by your very breath. Thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I think about the first couple verses here. And I wonder, have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like David in verses 1 through 3 where maybe you're in the middle of a difficult situation? Maybe there's some stressful conversation happening and you just have to clamp down on your tongue? little bit. You don't have to raise your hand. I think you've all probably been there where you've just had to bite your tongue and not say something. Just kind of keep your mouth shut. You know, maybe you wanted to say something. You wanted to insert your opinion in the conversation. I see some of you smiling, so I, I know I'm not alone in this. Um, but, but in the end, you thought better of it. So let's do a, a survey here. On a scale of one to ten, How hard is it to not say something that you really want to say? If you think it's above a seven, raise your hand. 
It's just, okay, every, all of us lack self-discipline, I see, okay? It is, it is, it is a challenge. We'll just leave it at that word. It's a challenge to keep your mouth shut and not speak. It might be one of the hardest things for us because we want to be heard. We want people to know what we're thinking and feeling. And I'm not suggesting that we just suppress our opinion all the time. That's, that's not what I'm saying, but it's, we, when we just want our opinions to be heard, oftentimes what happens is we just start complaining, don't we? Parents, I know you wouldn't know anything about that from your children, but we just kind of start to complain. It's easy to do. We don't want to be trampled on. We don't want to be forgotten. We want to be heard. We want to, don't want to be taken for granted. And there's plenty of moments when Christians need to speak up especially in our world today. Christians need to stand up and speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth, we need to do that. But I think that there are plenty of times, and you can probably figure them out pretty quickly, when we just need to not say anything, when we need to keep our mouths closed. And all of us are guilty of saying something that we shouldn't say, or maybe saying something when we shouldn't say something. And you could, you could thumb through David's life throughout the scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and you're going to come to moments where he failed to guard his tongue too. But we come to Psalm 39, and we find that David is attempting to live out a commitment that he made really to himself and to the Lord. He promised that he wasn't going, or that he was going to guard his tongue, And he was going to be very particular with his words. And wrapped up in this commitment to not sin with his tongue is something that might be even higher on that scale of 1 to 10 of difficulty than just not saying something than you want to. Wrapped up in all of this is the idea of waiting, of patience. That's a dirty word in our culture. Patience. That's why we have drive through everything. Patience is not something that we are used to or that we like. And guess what? David didn't get it right either. He blew it. Look at verse 1. He said, I'm going to guard my mouth. I'm going I'm to muzzle myself and keep his mouth shut. In verse 2, he, he's going to hold his peace. He's keeping silent, but he could only do it for so long. It was eating at him. Verse 3, his heart, it says, he described it as it became hot within me. And the more that he thought about it, as he mused, the more he thought about it, that fire just continued to burn hotter and hotter. Can you identify with this at all? Where you're trying to keep your mouth shut, but it's just like bursting out and you just can't, you just can't do it. Well, David couldn't do it either. Um, just kind of a side note, we're not ever told specifically what David is so frustrated about here. Like why in particular he is trying to hold his tongue in the first place. I do think though that verse 1 gives us a little hint, a clue. He, it says, so long as the wicked are in my presence. Okay, I think that's a connection that we need to make. You're going to find, and we in fact already preached on some other psalms of lament. We will preach on uh, some more songs of lament from David and from others. 
um, they're, they're crying out to God in their frustration. They're letting their distress be made known to God, lamenting on the fact that it seems like the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer. I mean, if you look through the Psalms, you'll find multiple authors who deal with this same kind of thing. It's actually one of the more common themes in the book of Psalms. Asaph, David, Jeremiah, Job, all of these guys tackle this idea of, Lord, it looks, this looks wrong. It looks like people who don't care about you are actually doing better in life than those who love you. Some of them say why, some of them ask questions, but it just shows kind of our heart in this that we're there too some days, aren't we? We see things happening that we don't understand, and so like David, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his provision, and maybe we're tempted to complain, and maybe even after that, we're tempted to begin to lose hope that God hears and cares. Now, there's no doubt that if you know anything of the life of David, you know doubt, there's no doubt that you know he had troubling things come along in his life. Um, he had his fair share of those things, some as a result of his own sin, some as a result of just uh, people that had it out for him, of that sort of thing. Uh, this, I think, might be what David is getting at here, that he committed to keep himself from complaining about his condition, and he wasn't even going to go to the Lord with it. That's why he said, I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But then it just, he couldn't do it. Um, but his, his effort maybe was to just try to stuff that down. I don't want to complain. Stuff's happening I don't get, but I don't really want to complain here. I don't want the Lord uh, to bear the brunt of this. I'm just going to ignore them. And you could kind of see how, if that's the attitude that it's like burning hot within you, like it's, it's going to just keep boiling. That doesn't, you guys, you guys know, right? That just stuffing your feelings down doesn't work. Okay. That's not how we're designed. Uh, our hearts become hot and eventually it just comes out. Shoving it down, just closing our mouths generally isn't going to fix the problem. Because to be honest, the problem doesn't start with your mouth. <laughs> the problem starts with our hearts, doesn't it? And so it's kind of like, I, I read it, it was like this way, that it's kind of like a, a river being held back by a dam. Right? If you don't divert the water before it gets to that dam, it's going to overflow the dam or break it. No matter how thick and sturdy it is, you have to do something different. It's like that. If our mouths are a dam, you have to stop that flow of complaining before it gets there or it's going to come out. The problem is with our heart, not our mouth. Jesus himself said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So David says, so long as the wicked are in my presence, in verse 1, I, I, I think this means that David has resolved to not complain to the Lord or not complain about the Lord where people who don't know the Lord can hear him. When we're wrestling with understanding the providence and sovereignty of God, I think it's wrong for us to go and complain to people that don't know God about what God is doing. I think about it in my relationship with, with my spouse, with Nikki. 
if, if we're having some issues, I don't want to go to somebody who doesn't know my wife. They're just going to believe everything I say. And I've got a one-sided view usually. I want to go to somebody who knows her, who knows her heart, who knows her lifestyle, who knows her love for me, her our history together, the integrity that she walks in. Because then if I come to them and I'm saying, well, look at what, everything she's done, she can say, they can say, well, hang on a second. I know your wife. I know she's not going to behave to you that way. That's not what this was going on here. When we go to another believer with an issue, maybe it's the sovereignty of God in our life is doing something that we don't understand, they can say, well, hang on a second. I know God. He loves you. What you're experiencing, you may not be understanding in the right perspective. And they can help us because they know the love of God and his integrity and his character, and they can point us back to those things. And so I think that's what David is getting at. He's not going to do that in front of people that don't know God, who can't point him back to the truth. Then he moves on in verses 4 and 5, and I think this kind of helps us understanding this. At this point, he, he just he can't stop himself. It, it comes out. Can't hold back any longer. Um. Interestingly enough, when it does come out, it seems to be pointed at the Lord. He says, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Now, I don't know that he's just casting all the blame, but he's at least recognizing where this is coming from. And, and I think that this is important for us understanding the previous verses, that he doesn't just run to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and unloads on them what God is doing. He goes to take his concerns directly to God himself. If God is the cause, God is also the solution. What better way to receive comfort or answers from the, the, the one who is truth himself? In our troubles, in our confusions, may we run to and plead with the one who knows us and who loves us. Because in verse 5, it certainly seems as though David is saying, Lord, you, this is you. You're doing this. You've done this. You have made my days just a few hand breaths. And even though it's kind of seems like it's in the middle of a complaint here, David still seems to understand the connection to God's sovereignty in his life. You have done this. He may not like it at the moment, but he understands that his life is just a dot on a map in comparison to who God is. If you've got a smartphone or a couple of years ago, before those were super popular, you could get online on your computer and do this, but if you get like Google Maps or whatever and you can zoom super far out from where you're at and you can see almost the whole globe, at least our whole state, and then you zoom in to where you are and it shows your dwelling place, your residence, and then even within that, you are sitting. And it kind of puts into perspective this idea of hand breaths and who God is. So does anybody know what a hand breath is? If you do a lot of sewing, you might. It's probably not that big. So a lot of times the measurements, and I hope I'm understanding this true, is, is a hand breath is kind of this, this measurement right here. And if you're, if you're doing measurements for sewing or that sort of thing, they used to do it that way. A hand breath is... Is that kind of measurement. It's the size of a person's hand from one side to the other. So it's generally about two and a half to four inches wide. 
Think about just the 16-foot tape measure that was here in comparison to, let's split the difference at three, three and a half inches, 16 feet, three and a half inches. I'm not real good with math, you know, but there's a lot of times that that would fit into 16 feet. Now, extrapolate that over the size of Missouri and the size of the United States and go around the whole globe, and you can see what David is getting at here. He's painting a picture with the idea of the hand breath. And then verse 6 joins the comparison by just him saying that man is but a shadow. He toils for nothing. And the wealth that he works so hard to mound up and set aside, it's just going to go to somebody else anyway. Somebody he might not ever even know. We all have jobs that we go to, and we do that to provide for our family, and it's right to work. But if that is the goal and purpose of your life, it's a shadow of what it should be. Now, if we stopped at verse 6, we'd be pretty discouraged, right? Your life is just but a vapor. It's a shadow. You work hard for nothing. If we just stopped there, that'd be a big bummer. David doesn't stop there, so we're not going to stop there either. Verse 7, he says, So under these circumstances, with this being the truth, human life being what it is, just but a vapor, David asks a question that I think maybe would be on all of our minds as we're reading this. Where's the hope? Where does my help come from? What am I waiting for, David says? It might seem like David's reached the depths of despair here, but when night is at its darkest, day dawns. Out of the depths, if you will, comes forth this like voice of faith rising up in David, and he says this incredible statement, Who do I wait for? My hope is in you. So even though God's plans and God's ways are often unclear, and seem at times to be unfair and confusing, David clings to the only hope he knows, God himself, the Lord. He doesn't look to a long life to be satisfied, because in reality, he says life is just a shadow. It's a hand breath, just a couple hand breaths. A long life isn't going to satisfy him. He doesn't expect that he's going to be rescued by another person from this, because everybody is just a shadow. And he certainly doesn't put any hope in his earthly wealth because that stuff you can't take with you and who knows who gets it after you're gone. David returns to a right frame of mind in saying that the only hope for the heart that despairs is in the Lord himself, is in God. No matter what happens, you as a Christian, as a believer, have hope in God. So even though your life may be confusing, There may be things happening that might even seem unfair at the moment. Maybe it's frustrating and it just seems hopeless and bills are coming in and the income's not and whatever else is going on. And it just, you don't know where to turn. Understand that our hope is not rooted in any of that stuff. Our hope is rooted in the unchanging God. That's how we can go through all of those difficulties with hope. In patience, because he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And don't miss this. There's something here I don't want us to miss. Even though David knew he was minuscule 
just tiny in comparison to who God is. He also recognized that God heard him and that God cared and that God loved him. He knew right away that he needed God's forgiveness and restoration and he knew who was faithful to give it. And so he went to the Lord. So I think this kind of ends David's complaint and he does it by throwing himself into the arms of divine mercy and wholeheartedly submitting himself again to the will of God. Verse 8, he continues this prayer. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fuel. He, he's asking God to deliver him from the transgressions. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this word and how it was kind of a trespassing, a going across the boundary of what God has set. And David's saying, forgive me of these things. His oversteps, his trespasses where he's gone beyond where he should. And he knows that if, if God doesn't deliver him, he's in real trouble. He's going to be the one who the wicked look at and pity and laugh at and mock. If God doesn't forgive and save, then he'll be the one who is laughed at by the foolish, wicked person. And David says, free me from that, Lord. Save me from that. You, you know, probably from reading the book of Job, that people in that day often attributed hard times in a person's life to sin, right? So Job's friends, I don't know if they meant well or not, but they were saying, well, surely you did something wrong to deserve all this. David may have felt that too. The afflictions that he was experiencing may even have been from others regarded as proof that David was doing something he shouldn't. That he was in sin and that would give a reason for his enemies to laugh and jeer at him. So David reasoned that if his sins were forgiven, his afflictions and the ridicule would cease or wouldn't happen. So to some degree, David viewed his own sin, at least part of the cause of his suffering and troubles here. But there's a duality of understanding of his own part in it. And God's sovereignty in it, over it, even in troubles. But notice something, and I think this is a neat thing that the Lord helped me see to this week. Notice that before David asks for his suffering to be removed, he seeks forgiveness from his sin. So he hasn't asked for God to take it away. He's just asking for forgiveness from his sin first. I think this is the right approach to confession and repentance and, and restoration, really. So may this influence how we go to the Lord. May we seek humility before help and restoration before relief, like David did. In verse 9, he says some familiar things. And I think this is really one of the key verses in the whole chapter. And I want us to look back and compare verse 9 with verse 2 for just a minute. Verse 9, he says, I'm mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Verse 2 says, I was mute and silent, so same word picture here. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So the, the start opening of these two verses are almost identical, are very similar. He says, I was mute and silent, in verse 2, in verse 9, he says, I'm mute, I do not open my mouth. So the same thing is happening. 
at the beginning. But notice the response. In verse 2, I held my peace, but to no avail. My distress just grew worse. But look at verse 9. Something has changed between verse 2 and verse 9. Verse 9, for it is you who have done it. Something's happened in David's life and his understanding. Verse 2, the silence was different than in verse 9. In verse 2, the silence was almost the silence of rebellion. The the dissatisfaction and maybe bitterness of what was going on in his life. And he just, you know, with clenched teeth, he was silent. But in verse 9, it's different. Verse 9 is the silence, I think, of a trustful submission to the wills and ways of God. David submitted himself to God without the desire now to complain of his providence. And the reason that the shift happened, I think, is at the end of verse 9. For it is you who have done it. So David looked upon the troubles and the afflictions, maybe even the sorrows, and recognized that they were produced by the hand of God and that in that same revelation and understanding, his response was different. In submission, his response was not, I'm just going to clench my teeth and not say anything and bite my tongue. His response was, I don't need to say anything because I know it's from you. And there's a big difference there, brothers and sisters. The silence may look the same at the start, but the reason for being quiet is totally different. It's a lot easier said than done to behave like David here. To bite our tongue, to hold our mouth, to not sin in that way. May the Lord do it in us. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, David, I think, is talking about the discipline of the Lord here and understanding these things. In verse 10, he says the stroke. Um, I think this is referring to the hand of discipline, kind of like the hand of a loving uh, disciplinary. uh, Let me say this from the start. The loving hand of a parent who disciplines their child. I think that's what David is getting at here. The discipline of the Lord, though, is not a paddle to the rear end. The discipline of the Lord is much more serious. And so this puts parental, godly parental discipline into perspective. It should, right? There's a purpose in it. It's not just to expel anger. That would be wrong to discipline in that way. But instead, the point of all godly discipline is really the same thing. To put things for the person that you're disciplining in the right perspective. To show them your behavior in this is not right. You got the wrong idea about how you should act here. Here's the correct way. And then we discipline in that way. Discipline from the Lord is the same thing. And so I think in verse 11, this is what he's getting at. He says, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. This happens in our lives, and most of the time, we don't like it when, we, when it happens, when we see it. God removes a relationship or something from our life, and we look at the Lord and say, God, why did you do this? 
Why would you take this away from me? And yet the motivation underneath it that we don't always see is that God is removing the things that are dear to us that shouldn't be dear to us. The Lord's discipline isn't designed to consume us. It's designed to consume our sin. It's the faithful discipline of the Lord that helps us see that the stuff of this earth, it doesn't last and it won't satisfy. As David says, you can heap it all up, but somebody's going to come after you that takes it and you may not even know them. It's vapor. It's a shadow. It doesn't mean anything. So discipline helps us to focus on the things that really matter, the things that go beyond just our own lifetime. And so David says, Again, that man is just a mere breath. If you remember from our time in Ecclesiastes, Solomon covered that pretty well. David also discusses it here. Just to be sure we understand this, they're not saying that life is worthless. That's not what he's saying, that man is a mere breath. He's not saying that life is worthless, just that life is temporary. It's fleeting. You don't live forever. And none of us know how long that's going to be. This should, as we're instructed to here with the word Selah at the end of verse 11, this should cause us to pause and just reflect on the difference between us and God for a moment. The eternality of Creator God and just the temporal lifetime that's just a couple of hand breaths in comparison. Again, that doesn't mean that your life is worthless. You have purpose and meaning in Christ. It just means that it's short. It's temporary here in this body. And so it needs to be in the right perspective. Now look at verses 12 and 13. This is kind of David's closing prayer. And I think there's an interesting progression in the first sentence that's kind of reflective of the prior 11 verses. It's like David is saying, Lord... I know that you've heard the racket of all of my sin, all the noise that my sin brings about. Now please hear the laments of my prayers. Hear my words. And verse 12 brings the progression of David's conversation with the Lord. He goes, interesting, he goes from a prayer to a cry to tears. The silent tears of a repentant, a truly repentant person speak louder than the words of a thousand hypocrites. David appeals then to God's relationship with his fathers, guys like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to the faithfulness shown to them, even in less than perfect obedience. None of them were worthy of being called the son of the Most High. David, just like his fathers, is just a traveler, a sojourner, a guest in the house of the Lord. He recognizes he hasn't earned a right to be there. It's by faith. And even in this great assurance, David still calls our minds back just to the fleeting nature of our lives. Even God's chosen men, the forefathers, guys like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they had just a certain end to their lives, like you and I will. Mankind is but a breath. 
And David ends with another appeal to the forgiving and redeeming nature of the Lord. Look at verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. If the Lord were to continue in his righteous discipline, that we really deserve, if he were just to continue in that without relenting, we would never smile again. We would have no hope. It would be discipline all the time. If the Lord's kindness doesn't intervene in your life, in the life of a sinner, before they are, as David put it, no more, before they leave this earth, then they have no other hope. They wouldn't smile again. They couldn't. But David's confidence and the confidence of every believer, what allows us to hope in the Lord is that God's goodness and love and care and provision last forever. They endure. No matter the situation, no matter the darkness that you're walking through, no matter the turmoil going on in your life, and even no matter how long you have to wait, and that's the one we have to swallow hard at, no matter how long we have to wait, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in Him. David said, my hope is in you. Is that where your hope is resting today? Or is your confidence in your own ability to provide or to overcome or to understand what God is doing? Where's your hope? Truth is, you can build up wealth. The world pursues that with reckless abandon. You can do it. You can make money. You can overcome challenges. You can take all the classes and learn how to deal with stuff and figure out how to succeed in life. But if your hope is not in the Lord, all of that stuff is gone. All of that stuff is, as David says, but a mere breath or shadow doesn't last. David understood his own sin to some degree, but I think he also understood the righteous judgment, but the forgiveness, the help, and the restoration that's found at the heart of God. The truth is, you can find those things too. You can find forgiveness, restoration, help, hope, joy, when you turn your eyes to the Lord. Not to a spouse, not to a kid, not to a job, not to a bank account, not to a picture in your mind of what you think a happy family should look like. None of that stuff. To the Lord alone. To finish this morning, turn to Psalm 121. David answered that question and said, you know, but what do I wait for? My hope is in the Lord. I wait for the Lord. That's where my help comes from. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Kind of a similar question here. Answer is the same. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's the hope. That's where our hope comes from. 
is that the Lord is the keeper. He who keeps his people never sleeps and never slumbers. For every Christian, that is a source of great hope. And if you've not put your faith in Christ, if you're not a Christian, as we sing our last song this morning and reflect on these things, please come up and grab me and let's talk. And I'll tell you how to have a relationship with the the real living God and have hope in any circumstance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for hope. David, in in the midst even of all of his struggles and trials, Lord, even though he knows your providence and your sovereignty, he knows that his rest and his hope is found in you. And so, Lord, may we be patient and wait. Lord, we need your filling for that to take place because that is not our nature. Help us to see and to know and to taste that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.